Hey, I want to remind you that whenever you leave today, you should, if you haven't already, turn left and left again. And our decorating team, led by Ashley Carpenter, um, often staffed by Tobin and Chris Carpenter, has got a great setup there for us to each take a picture. Trust me, it's what your mom wants. Also, we would really love it as a staff if you would take that picture and share it with us. Share it on Facebook, share it on there's other social media, I'm sure. And then share it, um, you can email it, however you would like to share it. We would love to have that photo. Also, the Huntleys are celebrating their very first Mother's Day. Brittany, Stephen's wife. Yes, there is baby Ashton Huntley. He was 11 billion pounds and six feet tall. And this photo is after his first shave. So that's freshly shaven Ashton. Yes. Uh, so he was born Thursday. Stephen will be out um, helping Brittany. And I, I believe there was a meal train that went out. If it hasn't, we'll make sure that goes out in an email um, this week to you as well. So if you need a reminder, maybe grab the pen and the seat in front of you. I don't have a fill in the blank for you this week. Uh, but you, if you need to remind yourself, maybe you want to draw like a little rectangle on your hand with a little circle on it that reminds you that you need to take a picture over here. And if you don't need that kind of reminder, maybe set an alarm on your phone for, oh, I don't know, three hours from now. Okay, so a couple had invited some friends over for dinner, and uh, mom is rushing to get everything ready. They finally get it ready, sit down to eat. She looks at her daughter and says, would you like to pray for the meal? And she says, mommy, I don't know what to say. And mommy says, just say what mommy says. And they all bow their heads, and she says, Lord, why did I invite all these people over today? <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. I hope you don't have to cook today. Uh, there was a mom who had just started her career after ushering her children through childhood into school. And uh, she's a new real estate agent. So she's typing up the listing. And it's a great listing because as a mother-in-law suite, with uh, it's upstairs, but it has a motorized chair that will take someone up there if they were to need it. And in a rush, she types, mother-in-law suite includes electric chair. <laughs> <laughs> Come on over. Stay the weekend. <laughs> she meant well. All of our moms mean well. All of our dads, parents, we all mean well. As friends, we all mean well. I'm sure that every one of us at some point in life has heard the speech if Jimmy jumped off that bridge, would you follow him? And I know the specific faces of you who interrupted your mom to say, Jimmy already jumped off the bridge and he followed me. Some of us have some friends like that. Last week we discovered that although uh, you could say that you are the company you keep, we don't all have a choice about who our company is. We don't choose our family. And like David, we're in 1 Samuel again today. Like David, we don't get to choose our family, we don't get to choose our boss, we don't get to choose, a lot of times, our co-workers, and we're still responsible for developing a character that reflects our true king, Jesus. So in a series called King Me, we have decided that it is probably not best that if we're we to achieve some level of freedom or independence whether that's finally graduating middle school and moving to high school or graduating somewhere else and moving on in life with our increased independence, we don't get to that back row of the checkerboard to say, give me my checker, king me, and live our lives as though we're building this little bitty kingdom that doesn't matter. But we want to get to that back row in whatever season of life you're in, and we want to then lay it at the feet of King Jesus, 
the only true king and say, how do you want us to develop and to establish and to bring forth your kingdom? Your, how do we live your kingdom values? How is your will done in my life for my benefit and for the benefit of those who know you and don't know you yet? So David, like you and I, didn't get to choose his company, but because he was faithful in the small things, he was able to develop some character that reflects that of our true King Jesus. So today we get to examine what we didn't have time for last week, and that is, what about the people with whom he got to choose when it was time to spend time with people? Discretionary time. He chose to spend time with these people. How, if at all, did those relationships then point him, shape him, make, remake him into the true image of the true king, Jesus, that we all proclaim as our king? The writer of Proverbs says, whoever walks with the wise becomes, say it if you know it, becomes wise, and the whoever keeps the company of fools suffers harm. So if this proverb holds, because a proverb is not always a promise, but if this proverb holds, then let's see then what David, by spending time with some people maybe he chose to spend time with, not his boss, not his co-workers, not his family necessary, but let's see if those people who affirmed the values David affirmed could have shaped his character in a way that he looked more like Jesus. So we don't have exact timestamps. It's not like today when you could go back and look at a recording of someone's life, and so many recordings are made that right now there are probably moments of our lives that are recorded we don't even know about. But we have a reliable source. We have the scriptures. So in 1 Samuel, if you want to follow along, I'm probably going to be starting around in 18, and I'll be summarizing clear through to 21 or 22-ish today. I don't have slides for you, but I'll tell you when I'm reading a specific verse, if you'd like to read along with me. We do have a mostly chronological account of the life of David as he develops from like a 15-ish year old up to the time he's really actually ascending, exalted as the king of Israel. We we have a reliable witness. So we're going to zoom back in time, and we're going to remember that, uh, let's just call them two tracks. We're going to remember that the track we talked about last week is the one where Saul's trying to murder him, and the Philistines are always attacking. And so he's always got that going on his life. But we also have this other track running through his life. So travel back with me as we examine the question, does the company we keep shape the character that we have? And if it does, then does it reflect that of King Jesus? How did the people in David's life, who were there for him when he needed them most, influence his character? These would be the kind of people that when David wrecked his chariot, they said, I've got you, I'll give you a ride to work. Or when David's gone to battle, they would say, hey, we'll check, we'll check on the family, make sure everything's okay. They got lunchables for days. Don't you worry about it. You just go on to battle. Now, I said concurrently because these are at the same time we're seeing that David's being hunted by Saul. He's being plotted against by Saul. Saul is leading people to try to take his life. And at the same time, I'm in verse 1 of chapter 18. Jonathan 
became one in spirit with David. Say one in spirit with me. One in spirit. He became one in spirit, loved him as himself. David's best friend was King Saul's son. What a really weird Christmas dinner that would be. David's best friend in the world, one in spirit, loved him like himself. But David had more than one friend. David had more than one friend. Proverbs says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity, or a sister. So what does it look like to have, and if you've never considered that proverb, it sounds kind of weird, like a brother is born for adversity, like they're going to fight me? That's really weird. And a friend is, is loving, but the brother adversity. So imagine it this way. Imagine that King Saul is hunting you, chasing you down, trying to take your life. And then imagine that the company that you keep can keep you from harm. Imagine that your friend, let's say his first friend we can look at, Michael, and you would see this in 18. Michael's his wife, who's also, let's talk about a weird Thanksgiving, uh, that's also Saul's daughter. So best friends with his son, married to one of his daughters. Michael saves David's life because she hears that Saul is sending men. She hears that he has sent men to bring David back to him that he might have him killed. Now, Michael's pretty brilliant because she says, until he leaves, she says, David, you got to leave. You got to leave. You got to leave. I know you got to leave. He's coming to get you tonight. You've got to leave. And David's not wanting to hear it, but finally she convinces him and David escapes in the night. And then she's a great friend. She buys him time. She drags an idol into the bed and she puts goat hair around it, pulls the covers over it. And the king's men arrive to the bedroom, to his house and say, we want David, bring him out. Oh, you don't want him right now. He's really sick. Trust me, you don't want to see him. He's really, really sick. And so they go away to King Saul and he says, I don't care. Bring me the whole bed with David in it. So they go back and they find out it's an idol with goat hair. When we have friends like this, they can save us from harm. But does that shape our character? More than once, David's life is saved by his friends. I wonder if, if anyone has ever saved your life. Or have you ever saved anyone else's life? I would love to hear the stories. I was in a merit badge called Life Saving Merit Badge at Boy Scout camp when I was, I don't even know, 12 or 13 years old or something. And all I remember about this stinking merit badge is that we had to go out into this pond that had to be infinitely deep and 5,000 miles wide. And they made us swim a mile every day, which consisted of us like throwing our arms at the water and sort of thrashing in a circle until we like laid on the beach and almost died. And as we're heaving for air, finally, this is our last day. It's Friday, and I don't even care about this merit badge anymore, but my friend is there with me, and he's pushing me. We're going to do this. So we're swimming. We finished our first mile, and we're definitely dying, and we're into our second mile, and we're just kind of flopping our arms in the water, wanting to not die, when I notice out of the corner of my eye, I mean, the water's like kind of here because we're basically dying in a life-saving merit badge course. The irony was not lost on me while I was actively dying. So I see this looks like a stick floating, but then I notice the stick is moving and it's moving as though it's going to intersect the pathway that we have to like flail and almost die through or swim through. And I'm, I'm starting to realize this stick is a snake. It's going to hit my friend. So I do what any good life-saving merit badge trained boy scout would do. Hey, lifeguard, can you save our life? 
you save us because there's a snake and you should save us now. And I'm thinking, we're getting out of this two-mile stinky swim. And no, uh, the lifeguard was not interested in saving us. In fact, he was only interested in looking at us and laughing. I'm thinking, at least throw the ring while you laugh at us. And he never throws the ring. And so finally, I muster up enough like thrashing to reach my friend and say, hey, snake. And that's when I discovered how hard life-saving merit badge is. Because initially, he just treaded water. But then eventually, he decided... I would save his life, and I would be his buoy. And now I understood why we had to take life-saving merit back. You're in the water, and somebody's freaked out. It's a bad situation. Uh, we both lived, by the way. I didn't die. Uh, he didn't die. And the snake didn't get us, and we got a merit badge. So thanks be to God, the snake didn't get us, but the company that we keep can save us from harm. The company that we keep can also provide us encouragement. But to what extent does the company we keep then develop our character as we seek to reflect Jesus, our true king? Remember, uh, during these times uh, of encouragement by his friends, David's also got this whole other drama going on of King Saul trying to kill him and Philistines constantly attacking. So through chapters 17 through 21, 2-ish, Imagine this life of David. Imagine the encouragement that as he's living this struggle, he's also receiving this encouragement. 1 Samuel 18 verse 5 says, Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And here's the part I want us to see. This pleased the troops, and all of the officers. So imagine the encouragement now that David's receiving in this, at the same time that Saul is seeking his life, he's receiving the encouragement not only from his friends, like Jonathan, his friend, who's a heart-to-heart friend. He's now receiving the encouragement, the approval, that we're happy to go to war with you, David, from all of those warriors he goes to fight with, even from the officers. So commanders of warriors are even pleased with David. Imagine that company there and the encouragement that David feels from those battles. Now, early in their relationship, this is right after Goliath, we see that Jonathan makes that covenant with David. Jonathan not only promised David, but then he follows through And this is at the Feast of the New Moon. You can see in chapter 21, we observe Saul's rage just beginning to froth. We observe Saul getting angry that David's not at dinner because David belongs at dinner. And we observe that Saul uh, and Jonathan has come here to try to to discern, is my dad going to kill you? Because he's met with David. He's met with him to find out, is my dad trying to kill you? What a friend who's willing to put his own relationship with his own father, not just any father, but the king. The guy has infinite power insofar as Jonathan is concerned. So Jonathan puts his life on the line in the court of a king, at the banquet of a king, who is his father, but also the king. Jonathan tries to discern whether Saul is still out for David's life. And Jonathan finds out really quick because Saul is slinging spears again, only this time it's at his own son, Jonathan. What on earth? The the anger reaches like a boiling stage 
And Saul says, I want David's life, and you're protecting him. And you can almost just imagine like a, an episode of Orange County Choppers, right? Like there's chairs flying, and everybody's angry, but King Saul is obviously in control, and the son is eh, not so in control, but really wants to find out from his dad. And so he finds out very clearly. Saul is still trying to kill David. And he goes to David, he meets with him, and at great risk to his own life, not only in the banquet, but then also meeting with the man Saul says, bring him to me, I want to kill him. Jonathan risks his life again and says, David, you've got to leave. I wonder if any of you have ever experienced a time in your life where someone advocated on your behalf. You were in a situation where you were powerless. Maybe it wasn't like David where you were hunted by a king. But you were in a situation where you found yourself without power and someone with great power is over you and they are taking advantage. Or maybe the truth, the truth could be that you are the person who came along to advocate or to, to mediate for someone who was in a position that they could not get themselves out of. I had a, a friend like this. His name was TJ, and it's the first neighborhood I remember growing up in. And it's the neighborhood where I've, I've met TJ and some other friends, but TJ and I love to play in the sandbox and play uh, Nintendo, the original Nintendo, and to play like cops and robbers and to play in the woods. And we love to play in the ditch when it rained. We love to just build a dam in the ditch. And there was one day we were building our dam in the ditch that uh, TJ picks up something that he found kind of in the ditch we're playing in. And he, he opens it up, and on my side, I just see, like, really big hair and um, inversely proportional, not so many clothes. And TJ's face goes from, like, shh, from just, like, confusion to, like, horror. And so TJ shuts the magazine, he throws it in the culvert under the road, and then he pokes it back in there with a stick. And I'm like, TJ, what was that? He says, you don't need to worry about it. I did not really understand what that was until later in life that TJ found but TJ that day was my advocate. He was my mediator. He stood between me and evil, and he said, not today. And friends, the company that we keep can save us from harm and can provide us with encouragement. David's son, King Solomon, writes, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Now listen to this. For if they fall... If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. And here's a woe. He couples it with a woe. He contrasts this great possibility of having two and one lifting up. But here's a woe. Woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Choosing to live outside of a community that reflects the values of our King Jesus back to you and allows you to reflect those values back to the community is like choosing to be alone and have no one to help us up when we fall. Why ever would we choose that? So living a committed Christian life, and I I don't love having to use adjectives in this sense. I just want to say Christian, but it's become so westernized and almost meaningless. It's like a cultural affiliation. It's not what Jesus intended because we water it down by our 
our unwillingness to obey. So choosing to live a Christian life, as we see Scripture say, choosing to live that Christian life puts you in community with people. And then the Lord forms these bonds in our lives where when we open the Word together alongside a brother and sister, or whenever we serve alongside a brother and sister, either of which is at the feet of and in the service of our true king, then he knits our hearts together like David and Jonathan. Then we have relationships that can save us from harm, that can provide us encouragement, but I would even wager that can help us reflect the true image of our King Jesus. Some may reflect, however, and say, when I was sick, nobody visited me. And friends, after like two weeks of being a senior pastor, I want to tell you what really weighs on me. And it's that. It's really that. It's the number one thing I've asked Robin. Hey, who are you shepherding right now? Who do we not know about? Who does our staff not know about? Our elders not know about? Our elective leaders? Our Bible study leaders? Who do our life group leaders maybe not know about that you're following up with? Because you should never claim to be a Christian and then feel alone when you are the one that has fallen sick or ill or fallen down, like Solomon writes. You can look at the life of Saul and you can't find a single person who is going to be there for Saul, who's going to try to establish heart connection with Saul, probably because he's going to throw a spear at him, and that's psycho. Who wants to be friends with that? Nobody wants to be friends with that. But you can look at the, the life of David and you can see that heart-to-heart relationship with Jonathan. You can also see something else. So I think that as we've examined whether the, the company that we keep can help us develop the character of a king. There are two truths that we have to hold at the same time. Uh, Number one, David's life is built around relationships like that of the relationship with Jonathan, then also the relationship with those that he fought with. So there's relationships, let's say. But then number two, David also has, and that was this column right here. There was number two, there were all the trials that David faced. There were all of the attempts on his life by his own king, Saul. There were the Philistines constantly. So I think that the truth lies somewhere in the the hanging on to and the holding on to and the faithfully walking through the both at the same time-ism of the fact that our character is going to be established, proven, refined as we walk through the truths of the fact that someone wants our life. He prowls around like a roaring what, Georgetown? A roaring lion seeking about someone he may devour. But we also are given this church. We're given relationships. We're given heart-level unity. But only if we've given ourselves to that same heart-level unity. I think it might be important for us to examine just briefly when we noticed that someone didn't come visit us when we were sick. 
or when one of our family members was sick. And we expect that as a Christian who says, I'm a brother, I'm a sister. Then I wonder, this is our standard for others, how is our standard for ourselves? I might ask, who did you visit when they were sick? Did you know that someone was sick? How would you know if someone was sick? How would you find out if you're not in a relationship with people that you want to call your brother and your sister and expect them to be there for you when you're hurting? So if there's a disparity here in your expectation and your performance as a brother and sister, then nothing else I need to say today for you matters. You need right now to begin reflecting on that disparity. Because no matter how many pastors we hire, no no matter how many elders we have, ministry team leaders, life group, elective leaders, this disparity exists in some hearts. And we'll never shift the balance. Only Jesus is going to change this disparity right here to where your expectation is going to match with your performance as a brother and sister who says, I got to have a relationship like David and Jonathan have. I can't face this alone. Well, friends, none of us can face it alone. And that means that we have to be a Jonathan, for someone that needs us. So we're going to close, and I want to just quickly apply a couple of things for us. How many of us, when something gets really hard, remember David's whole train of life here with challenge and trial and suffering, how many of us, when something gets really hard, our first inclination is to think, this must not be God's will? Let me offer for you 50 billion arguments briefly. Number one, the life of Jesus Number two, the life of David. Number three, the apostles. Number four, the New Testament. Need I keep going? I think, friends, that perseverance produces character. Isn't that what Paul wrote to the Romans? It produces character, and character produces hope. Who needs to be the kind of friend that Jonathan was to David? Who around you feels like maybe I need to check in there? Because our church cannot call ourselves Christians and then not behave like Christians, especially insofar as it's concerned with our care for one another. Who today needs to be checked on? The proper response isn't here, hey, Chris, you need to check on Bill. That's, I don't need to hear that. I need to hear hey, Chris, I checked on Bill. Here's how our church can help. Because then the body, then the body really is joining together in unity. When it's Chris, go help him. It's everybody's connected to Chris, and I'm going to fail them in 13 seconds about-ish or faster. Who today needs you to be a TJ for them? Who today do you need to say, oh, I see a snake and get their attention before they have a snake encounter the path that they're traveling in life? Rick Warren's son, Matthew, struggled with mental health his whole life. Matthew would often say to his dad, 
Dad, how long do I have to suffer like this? Why does God let me suffer like this? And among a whole variety of other things that Rick would say to his son, one of the things that Rick said to his son was, Matthew, whenever you're suffering, whenever you're in the throes of depression and everywhere is dark, do you want someone to come in who has a perfect life and tell you how you can now have a perfect life? Would you feel like that person has a heart connection, David and Jonathan? Or when you're in the stormiest moment of your life, would you rather have someone who has suffered as you have suffered, who has been through every trial that you've been through, to walk into that dark place where you are in the throes of suffering and say, this hurts a lot, doesn't it? I've suffered some of what you've suffered. And I've found hope in Jesus. Matthew then at some point began living in a character that reflected that kind of a heart, a heart that we see perfectly in Jesus, a heart that we see kind of in David, which we'll get to examine some more later. Matthew began sharing the good news that he has experienced by Jesus coming into his heart and life and transforming him in the midst of his darkness as a source of light and hope, but to only people who will accept someone who has lived in darkness like Matthew. And my friends, that's what I'm telling each of you today. I'm telling back to myself today that we have one who is able to sympathize, who has gone before us to the cross, to the grave, ascended to heaven, and he works in a heavenly tabernacle once for all sin. And if you choose to place your faith to continually walk in allegiance to a true king, Jesus, he wants you to be a part of his family. He offers a transformed heart that in the midst of darkness and pain and storms and terror and trial, he offers a heart level connection, not only with him, but with his body. And that's why we can't not be that because he's made us for that. As his people, we not only individually, friends, but hear this, unwesternize this. He has made a body of people that when we together collectively have a unity that's visible to the world, then they see hope. It is when we are together reflecting our true identity in King Jesus that his kingdom can be established, not just in our hearts, not just in our homes, not just in our individual lives, but in this world that he is transforming by partnering with us, his church. Friends, it's by a power that is outside of you. It is by the power of a Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit. When Jesus ascended, he said, friends, I send to you one, and you're going to do greater things you will see because he'll be in you and live through you. And that's only possible when we say, I yield my life to King Jesus. My life is his. If you would bow your heads, I have two questions for you. Is the going in your life tough and someone showed up? Thank God for those people today. I just want to give you a minute to reflect 
on who has shown up. Maybe they threw the magazine in the culvert under the road. Maybe they literally saved your life like Jonathan did David. Thank God for those people he's put in your life today. As you reflect the second question, what, what about us? Where do we need to be a Jonathan? Who is it that needs a Jonathan in our life? And we know right now, and I believe right now by his Holy Spirit, he can place in your mind, your heart, your spirit, the name of a person who you specifically, I can't know, you specifically, like Matthew Warren, Rick's son, only you know what they're walking through. And they need to hear, not from someone that has the answers, but from someone who has walked exactly where they're walking. Today, if you need to make a decision to follow Christ for the first time, to make him the king of your life, I invite you to come as we sing. If you need prayer this morning, I also invite you to come. Father God, I'm so grateful for the gift of your word. I'm grateful for your Holy Spirit alive and at work in each one of us. I pray that you would, this morning, convict us. Who do we need to be a Jonathan to? Thank you, Father, for your son, Jesus. In his name we pray.